Our health is very much shaped by the structure of the spaces around us, what we often refer to as our built environment. The concept of the built environment was developed for fields of urban planning and architecture and includes any aspects of our spaces that influence human activity, from density of homes and buildings, access to transportation options and community spaces, and the streets and sidewalks, or the lack thereof. The built environment is also highly relevant to public health. The structure of spaces around us will impact whether or not we elect to commute by automobile, public transit, or walking or riding a bicycle. It can impact selection of the foods we eat, proximity to health services, and thereby has greater impacts on equity by driving housing prices and access to resources. There are many aspects of the built environment to dissect and understand, certainly too many for a single podcast episode. Today, we are going to discuss what we'll call the pedestrian built environment. That is, how does the design of our streets impact how we get around? What do urban planners and engineers typically do to make streets safer? And how can epidemiology tools help us to improve public health in this area? I'm your guest host, Ghassan Hamra, Assistant Professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Today, I'm joined by Epidemiology Counts proper host, Brian James, who is graciously or mercifully, depending on the day, taking some time away from his new twin babies, or two kids at the same time to join us. Hi, Brian. Hey, Gassan. Thank you so much for stepping in and, and uh, t- taking over as guest host. It's actually three kids at the same time, right. two twins and, and a five-year-old. So yeah, it's a lot going on, but I'm happy to be involved. Thank you. Nice. And we are joined by an expert in the area of pedestrian built environment, Steve Mooney. Steve is an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Washington, Seattle. Steve is also Associate Director of the Research Corps at Harborview Injury Prevention and Research Center. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. I should also note that Steve and I are working on some research regarding bicycle infrastructure in Philadelphia. So just as a uh, kind of declaration of bias in this uh, in interest in this podcast episode. And I should, uh, I promised Brian I would explain two kids at the same time. And what that is, is a reference to an episode of This American Life, Uh, where a gentleman is trying to hang out with a friend of his who had just had twins maybe six (laughs) months prior, and the friend is impossible to get in touch with, and the friend finally gets in touch with him, and they talk about it, and he says, we have twins, but he basically explains that twins is too innocuous of a term and he says it needs to be called two blanking kids at the same time and so yeah that's fair you, that's you can fair. you can put in the blank whatever you want there you go well thanks for explaining that i am i think i'm here i'm here in person and 75 percent in cognitive function so let's oh, go perfect that's, let's that's, do it that's generous for yeah that is generous current situation that's great <laughs> So as we discussed in the intro, the built environment is usually thought of in the context of urban planning or architecture rather than public health. But clearly, the way we design our cities and towns has implications for whether or not it is safe to walk around. Steve, can you give us an example of some things you look at to indicate whether environments are safe or unsafe for pedestrians or bicyclists? And when I say pedestrians, I should clarify that I mean walkers, cyclists, even scooter riders. Mm, The infamous scooter riders. 
Yeah, so there, I think the, the often people talk about uh, active transportation modes sort of encompassing all of those and that gets into the, the nerdier side that we maybe don't want to, uh, to go into. But I would say that um, the, you know, the, if you think about, about infrastructure for walking or rolling or getting around in, in any way, you have to have somewhere that you're going to do the thing you're going to do. If you're going to walk, you need to walk somewhere. If you're going to, to bike, you need to bike somewhere. And how those spaces are built for walking or biking or driving can have significant impacts on how risky it is. Anybody who's ever, so right now, actually, I'm, I'm nursing a busted finger. I fell down mm. while running because I tripped on some bad pavement. Oh. Um, and uh, if that pavement had been built differently, I presumably would not have tripped and my finger would be better. So, uh, so that's a, that's a, it's that kind of thing that we're really interested in. I think the specifics of bad pavement are probably not that big of a deal for most, for the long-term health consequences of most younger adults. I will heal, I will be fine, it's not a big deal. But for older adults for whom a fall could mm -hmm. be an end of life event, uh, it can be a really big deal. So understanding the ways in which things like um, presence of sidewalks, safety of sidewalks, uh, both encourage activity and protect us from injury is, is, is the, the key area for both environment and health, I think. Yeah, cool. Wow, you didn't have to, you know, personally show your research how it affects health like that. That was that's so nice of you to do a personal demonstration. And I hope you heal up soon. You know, I'm really I'm dedicated to my craft. You are at a, dedicated at a very to very high level. Perfect. It um, reminds me actually of um the streets in Philadelphia where one of the and Steve knows this, but uh, we've talked about it before, where many of the major roads accessed by bicyclists have these one inch deep trolley tracks mm -hmm. on either side. And I have heard people catching their tires in those trolley oh, yeah. tracks and going over their handlebars or sideways. Oh yeah. I know someone that broke two arms getting caught in the trolley track. It Oof. is a, uh, I can, so that's a really interesting uh, point, Steve. Yeah. I lived in Philly for 10 years myself. And I remember those oh. and, and the cobblestones, those oh, cobblestones yeah. trying to bike on those, forget it. Uh -huh. um, well, this is really interesting. And, and, and um, I, 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 you know, have this question of how much is epidemiology or public health, what you do, actually influencing the design of cities, or is it, or is it the other way around? Is it just, you know, urban planners are designing the cities, and then you, as epidemiologists who work on this area, are just kind of responding to it? Do you actually have like a seat at the table in helping to design cities? So I would say that's a work in progress. Mm. Um, I, I have many connections with people in different areas of the Seattle government where I'm based. And I try to talk to them about things that I think would be the right policy or the right choice when I have a chance. But, but urban planning is driven by urban planners as it should be. They have all kinds of expertise. One of the real keys to doing urban planning right is community investment, community involvement, like really reaching out to all of the stakeholders before making any change. Mm -hmm. And as an, as an epidemiologist, I don't have that scope and I don't have that time to get, to get into it. So the urban planner should drive the process and, sure. and they do in my experience. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I think epidemiology has a role to play in helping guide what choices to make. Mm -hmm. So uh, and, and, and I should say that transportation engineering has been doing this for years and epidemiology takes a slightly different take a maybe more causal, less descriptive sort of uh, mm. approach to it. But you could imagine that deciding where to put in a crosswalk crossing a busy street mm -hmm. is both an engineering problem and a public health problem at the same sure. time. And so the urban planners who are doing their jobs right, or at least the way I want them to be doing it, reach out to 
people in injury prevention as well as transportation engineers to figure out what the right what the right choices are, what the arguments are for, say, putting in a crosswalk, putting in a, a signal, putting in uh, speed bumps, different kinds of, of um, traffic calming measures mm -hmm. or, or pedestrian infrastructure, or these are all sort of parts of the same, the same changes to the built environment to encourage safe walking, safe biking. Cool. So how, how did you get into this area in the first place? Because I know from my perspective, I, it's, it's, it's personal interest, right? I ride a bike everywhere. I walk 90% of the time. I don't particularly like getting in my car to do any activity that could be reasonably executed without an automobile. But how, how about your, for yourself? What, 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 what drove you to get kind of deeply involved in this research area? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a lifelong thing. I think it's easy in a sort of post hoc way to look back at different events in my life and see whether it shaped it in some ways. One of them is that I grew up in Oakland, California. And when I was 15, my house burned down in one of those, oh. like, or my parents' house burned down in one of those big California wildfires that, that you hear about sometimes. Um, and uh, my, we moved to downtown Oakland. And when we moved to downtown Oakland, uh, the um, suddenly I, I was near public transit. I had access to a whole world that I didn't have access to in the sort of more remote um, section of town that I had grown up in. And, uh, and that was a, that was a, that sort of, that, that sparked an interest in the ways in which environments affect our choices. And then, you know, later there was, there was, I think I would point to the Iraq war as a major feature in this, which was definitely not only about oil, but not, not about oil from uh -huh. my point of view. Um, I got sort of radicalized about not wanting to drive my car in the context of a war that I thought was stupid. Um, and, you know, all respect to the people who, who, who gave their lives for it. I don't mean to, to be uh, suggesting it, that, I, I don't think we should have gotten involved in it, but it wasn't my call to make and I recognize that it happened. Um, and I appreciate the sacrifice that people have made um, for it. Um, but I, I wish it hadn't happened and I didn't want to support it. And I felt that um, not driving was, was, I was, I was flailing for an opportunity to feel some control over a situation that I felt was, was wrong. And I felt that not driving was one way to do it. And so I started taking the bus to work. I was at this point a, a young programmer nerd at, uh, at Microsoft. And I realized when I started taking the bus, how much um, it affected my, on my choices on stopping at a coffee shop on the way to work, on my interactions with my neighbors. Um, and I really became probably an irritating advocate for the bus. Um, and then it was interesting to see some of my friends could take the bus and others had constraints that prevented them from taking the bus or making other life changes. And that became very interesting to me. What are the, what are the trade-offs? What are the ways in which those of us who live in the dense urban core have easy access to buses, but people who live further away, the bus takes an hour and a half to get wherever it is that they're going. And some of those details sort of furthered my interest. And then eventually, um, eventually I became burned out by Silicon Valley and um, more excited about sort of doing academic work. And that led me into epidemiology, but specifically with this interest in built environment. And so I've stuck with it there. Very cool. Your origin story, very interesting. I wasn't <laughs> expecting the Iraq war, but, but it all makes sense now. Um, so can you give us an example of some of the maybe interventions or exposures, you know, some aspect of the built environment that you have suggested to urban planners could be altered to make things safer, you know, just to give our listeners like an idea of like, what, what do you actually do here? Like, I get it. Yeah, we don't want people to get hit by a car, but what can you actually do to prevent that? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. So there are, there are a lot of things and we're still sort of developing the research base, but I think one of the things that is most interesting to me right now um, is uh, it's not obvious that crosswalks are helpful. Um, hmm. there, there's a fair amount of evidence that, uh, and, and this is a complicated for technical reasons that I won't get into here, um, but there's a fair amount of evidence that, that places where there are crosswalks are not significantly safer places to cross the street than places that aren't. And you can imagine a lot of behavioral reasons for that, whether it be um, excess sort of confidence on the part of, of people walking that cars are gonna stop for them, whether it be sight lines that the drivers are aware, whether driving culture in some places, particularly places that have crosswalks that are rare, um, precludes the driver stopping. Sort of expectation is I'm here and I've got this vehicle, you'll get out of my way. There are all kinds of behavioral things you can imagine happening. But for a long time, I think our go-to has been to say, this is the right place to cross the street. And we're gonna mark it on the, on the pavement to ensure that people do that. And I'm not convinced that that actually works. Um, and so that's, a, that's an, an area, there was a, a totally fascinating study at UW that predates my time in which among other things, they hid cameras in garbage cans at crosswalks to get accurate counts of people crossing the street. Um, and uh, and that, that suggested that at least among older adults, um, crossing at crosswalks was not safer than crossing in not uh, in, in places that, that did not have marked crosswalks. So what, what's the alternative though? Like just crossing like the wild west, just wherever you want? <laughs> no. uh, I think maybe more, more, um, more complicated traffic engineering. There's a lot of evidence coming out of, out of places in Europe that, um, uh, that uncertainty among drivers, although it sounds bad, is actually helpful. Um, that when you're driving and you feel like you understand where you're going, you drive more confidently and you are less, actually less aware of your surroundings. Um, and I'm not sure that, that we want to have every intersection everywhere be chaos, um, but I, I think that it might be that um, thinking more carefully about what it means to actually prioritize pedestrian safety might involve, it might just involve more speed bumps, it might involve more slowing, it might involve more um, uh, traffic cameras or spe speed cameras on mm. places where people tend to speed. Um, there's there's a whole thread, and this gets this gets complicated. But um, I don't think I, there's seems like a bad idea to get law enforcement more involved with mm -hmm. traffic stops right I would now. Say so. <laughs> um, but automatic enforcement brings an alternative, um, and and it's a much more efficient alternative. There are obviously civil liberties problems with having cameras everywhere, yeah. but I wonder if there are ways to use technology like speed cameras to alter behavior in ways that don't bring people in conflict with law enforcement and don't, um, don't encourage the kind of, of unsafe driving that we see in practice. So that's mm -hmm. where I'd be interested in, in sort of looking into it. If, is, are there places where there are crosswalks that are unsafe? Can we take them out? Could we build them as speed bumps? Could we build them in other ways that 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 prioritize pedestrian safety? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And it, you know, getting back to the point you made about crosswalks, it reminds me of some of the work you did using Google Street View that I read. Where when I read the work, it seemed like the take-home message were crosswalks are less safe than other points where people might cross streets. So I guess 
the question I have is two parts. One, am I interpreting that correctly? And two, what do you say to people? Because it seems to me that, and this is something I have a constant back and forth with, with friends of mine who just think that some pedestrian activities, riding a bike, walking are just fundamentally unsafe. <laughs> they sometimes seem to think that, or they do think, and I think reasonably that more infrastructure would resolve the problem, but sometimes I'm not sure that that's the case, but the, the interpretation, I think, of the lay audience or individuals who just see a street with cars on it and no clear bike lane versus a street that has, say, a bike lane that's protected. I mean, the intuition for me, for sure, is, oh, I see a protected bike lane that has to be safer than this other street that does not have said bike lane. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And, and I think I would frame it in a couple of different ways. So the, the work we've done with Google Street View was to a large extent a proof of concept of the idea that we could use Street View to assess infrastructure reliably and then do larger scale studies where we can compare across cities, we can compare within cities, we can compare with, with, with um, changes over time um, using archived imagery like, like there is on Google Street View. So we would love to be able to, to do that. The, the study that I shared with you was, was sort of showing that we could do it. And it did come to the conclusion that there were more um, injuries per pedestrian at places with crosswalks. Um, so I think there are a lot of ways to think about it. One of them is that traffic engineers rightly put in crosswalks in places that they think are more likely to be dangerous. If you right. imagine, this was in the context of New York City, uh, in a lot of parts of New York City, particularly in some of the outer boroughs, there are minor one-way streets that cross other minor one-way streets. Um, those might be places that don't have crosswalks. They mm -hmm. might also be pretty low risk for pedestrians. If you have yeah. one lane going one direction, one lane going another direction, you only have to look two places and you're pretty only one for where you're crossing and it's a quick crossing, um, you're probably pretty safe. Um, you know, I think, I think some, of the, some of the direction that the traffic engineering is going now towards narrowing crossing spaces, towards building protected bike lanes is probably more helpful than just painting the road. Um, but those are more expensive interventions. And I think part of the work here needs to be understanding how much benefit do we get and what are the costs and what are the systems level effects? Um, like if, if a protected bike lane makes more people ride a bike, it's conceivable that you could add a protected bike lane. It could make the biking safer in the section that is the protected bike lane, but access from someone's home to that protected bike lane when they're on their way to work might be putting them at higher risk than they would have been had they taken a different route that didn't go through the protected bike lane. Um, so the, it's, a, it's a very complicated space um, and we're, we need you know, good tools and more research. It's, I would say it's also a space that there's not a lot of research money allocated to. Mm. And in some ways, um, you know, if listeners of this podcast have the ear of either CDC or the National Highway Transport Safety Administration or anywhere else that sometimes does fund this kind of work, um, I highly encourage you to speak to your, your uh, funding agencies and encourage them to do more of this stuff. And that is totally personal interest, um, <laughs> as well as community interest. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Use the podcast as a way to get funds. That's, that's smart. Um, but I want to unpack this just a little bit more because I'm still, as, as someone listening to what you're saying, um, I find this intriguing, but I also find it a little confusing. Like, so what you were saying was exactly what I was thinking about that, you know, how is this not a reverse causation thing, right? Because obviously the most, the most busy intersections are, are clearly going to have the most pedestrian injuries, but that's like, you know, it's like a, what came first, the chicken or the egg thing. I, I guess I can't envision 
what you could have other than a crosswalk. Like help me, help me come up with an idea of what can you have other than a crosswalk to cross two busy streets that are, you know, um, passing each other. Like how, how do you get people across them safely? That's a, that's, that's a great question. So part of it is what do you mean by a crosswalk? So you, typically crosswalks are paint on, on this like painted white mm -hmm. or yellow or sometimes zebra striped lines on a, on a street. In some more, more wealthy, often more retail area spaces, crosswalks are built in different ways. They're slightly elevated, maybe different materials. Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole world of, of um, planning and design where people are experimenting with different ways to create crosswalks. And so it might be that that where you have two major streets crossing, even if it's you know uh, major major thoroughfares, it's worth saying this is a high risk intersection. We're going to make all the drivers go up and over a little bump, mm -hmm. um, which is this raised raised crosswalk, mm -hmm. so that they are really aware of it and careful and slowing down for it. It right. might not. I don't know. But that's a, that's an alternative to the conventional painted crosswalk. Gotcha. Um, another thing is, in, you know, in some cases there there's there's been work of building pedestrian overpasses. I think those are generally not yeah. appreciated because oh. A, they're often not accessible, although increasingly they're built with accessibility regulations. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but also uh, it's a lot longer for a pedestrian. Like mm -hmm. it sort of prioritizes the car over the pedestrian. So mm -hmm. potentially some of these places could have car underpasses mm -hmm. where the pedestrian space is, is walkable. That would require, that would have to be a place where there's like to make that that would be a huge investment to make that investment right. would require it to, to <laughs> yeah. really be necessary to prioritize pedestrians but you could imagine that there are some places sure. that are very high risk where the, that kind of full separation would be useful what about like so i mean one of the things that seems dangerous about intersections to me is that cars aren't just coming one way they're coming two ways and then you've got cars turning as well so it's almost like you know four different ways that cars could be coming from you don't know you have to have your head on a complete 360 swivel so like i've always thought like you know move the place that people cross instead of at the intersection just at like you know a part of the road where cars are only going two ways you know like north south and then you just cross there so you only got to look north south is that, you know, so like, like, like why, why did we decide that you have to cross where the roads meet? That's what I don't understand. That's a great question. And I think, I think the answer is that where the roads meet are also where you have the most choices to go different directions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I do think mid-block crossings make sense, particularly in cases where there are destinations on either side. Um, but the reason that we cross at intersections is that's where, that's the point where you realize you need to be on a different side in order to go I somewhere. I, see. Um, yeah, I would sense. also say, I should mention this, this is, this is an important feature in all of this discussion, um, that uh, when we're talking about, about collisions between pedestrians and cars, um, the population at risk matters a lot. Um, and so... Uh, a fair number of fatalities actually do happen at mid-block crossings or sort of not mm -hmm. at intersections, um, even though all of the crossing tends to happen in an intersection. Um, and that, that can be for a number of reasons, but the, there, there are roles of things like um, alcohol involvement in the crash mm -hmm. or um, what destination someone is trying to get to or running to catch a bus that are probably relevant in individual crashes. Um, and it, it, so it's not, this is not purely an intersection oriented um, uh, focus um, for research. Uh, it's super interesting. And it makes me think a lot about myself as a driver when even, you know, I, given my tendency to be more pedestrian than more automobile driving, 
I'd like to think of myself as a relatively safe driver, but even I catch myself on occasion at a four-way intersection, just following the intuition of, okay, well, that street that I'm about to turn right onto is a one-way street. So I'll just look to my left mm. and make sure that no one's coming, forgetting sometimes that there's a whole pedestrian population on my right side mm. that I should be paying attention to. And even in my best, you know, when I try to do my best, sometimes I, I catch myself not not doing that quite as intuitively as I should. So it's just, it's, it's a really interesting feature to think about. But I also, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, the safety in numbers theory of safety of um, pedestrian built environment, because, and you know what that is, and I know what that is, but could you- I don't know of, what that is. Okay, so perfect. So tell, <laughs> tell everybody what, it, 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 it's almost in the name, Brian. So it's not gonna- uh, be Yeah, confusing. I mean, I kind of figured but, it out, but yeah, you know. Yeah, but we'll-, we'll, we'll ask, I just gotta uh, get seven people to cross yeah, the street exactly. if I want. Hey guys, perfect. come across the street. Exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah so Brian, uh, Steve can give us a little description of the safety numbers and and what do you think about it? Because it's one of those things that I, I read about it and I think through it and I think, well, that actually makes good sense to me, but I'm not sure about the evidence behind it. I've read- I've read kind of uh, both ways, but maybe a little bit more in favor of safety numbers, but could you explain it to us and tell us what you think about that? Sure. The, the basic idea um, is that across different places and across different times and across different like small micro scale geographic units like an intersection or macro scale units like a country, the more people there are walking or biking, the safer it is for each individual to be walking or biking uh, at the sort of individualized risk level. Because um, you can use other people as a shield, right? Well, so it's the, the right, right. The literally <laughs> oh, throwing uh, someone else the under idea. the bus yeah, yeah, is right, your right. best way to, to cross the street. Um, no, uh, that, the, the, um, the mechanisms are actually, I would say, not fully understood. It's thought that it could be that people drive more carefully when they are aware of more pedestrians and bicyclists. Mm -hmm. It's also possible that places that have more pedestrians and bike bicyclists have better infrastructure and that infrastructure is itself protective. Mm. Um, uh, you know, it's possible that there are other, uh, other mechanisms that are not coming to mind right now. Um, uh, but this, um, the, the sort of statistical element of it, that the, you know, um, it, it, the more people you have there, the lower the risk per individual seems to be replicated pretty consistently across different places. Um, and so that that feels really important because if you're going to say put in a protected bike lane and get more bicyclists there, you might see the total number of bicycle collisions go up. Because if you've got a hundred more bicyclists in a place that used to have five, at some level there's a better chance that any of those hundred new bikers might get hit by something. Um, but it might be safer on a per bicyclist basis with more with more bicyclists and sort of communicating about that and thinking about that is really important for understanding how these inter like built environment interventions might create safety or not. Yeah, I was just listening to a um, our local NPR affiliate WBEZ, and they were inter they were interviewing in Chicago here. They are interviewing a um, person who gives bike tours around Chicago, and the host actually asked, you know, aren't you worried about people on your bike tour getting hit? And he's like, we've been doing this for years, we've never gotten anyone hit because we have about 20 bicyclists all in this pack and we pick up the size of a city bus. So like, you know, we're very visible. We all turn together. We, we you know, we take a lot of space. We're very, and, 
he was making the exact argument here. I didn't know what the term for it was, but safety in numbers. Um, so that was interesting to hear that that actually, at least for that company, seems to work. Yeah, you know, in in the uh, in the Bay Area where I grew up, there have at least since I was in high school been these these critical mass bike rides uh, where once a month they'll get uh, like hundreds or sometimes even thousands of people to ride bikes yeah. together. And they're controversial. The people dis like don't <laughs> yeah. follow the the laws. Um, yeah. They often they often will block off intersections to let everyone pass mm -hmm. um, pass through safely, um, but you know against against the light and so on. Um, and this uh, there's a good reason that they're controversial, but it's it's all it's fascinating. You know, like they really are sort of creating this notion that the bike that bike riding feels safer and feels better if a lot of us are doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I the I'm not for both professional and personal reasons going to take a stand one way or the other on, on critical mass. Um, right. But I think it's a, it's a fascinating phenomenon and um, interesting to see both how it's reacted to and how it continues. Um, uh, and and it, I, I believe it's still going on. I think I saw. Oh yeah. We have that in Chicago critical mass in Seattle yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, a day or yeah. two ago. Um, well, actually, let's let's unpack that a little because I'm mean, going to go, that's an extreme example, but I, I, running through a lot of this, you know, when I talk about this with people, there is a tension between uh, people who drive and people who bike, uh, specifically those two, but also people who walk. And yeah. I I'm wondering if there's any way to approach this so that that tension doesn't exist. Like, why does it have to be like, I'm team driver and these bicyclists are annoying the crap out of me. And then, or, or like I'm team biker and these cars are a danger to my life and I hate them. Um, you know, I've always been like, can't we design things? So like, um, it, it just seems, I don't know if that's just the psych human psychology thing, but it does seem like the way things are designed, it's like to benefit one or the other. You know, it's either this is going to make it easier for me to drive at the expense of bicyclists, or this is going to make it really easy for bicyclists to get down Milwaukee Avenue here in Chicago. But it's impossible now as a driver to get anywhere in less than half an hour because all the lanes are bike lanes. So, or it seems right. like it's interpreted to be either or, right? Like yeah. when I see infrastructure, I remember when infrastructure changes went in on one of these streets in Philadelphia, you know, they interviewed local folks about it and they're like, well, I can't take this because I can't get around and we're losing all these parking spots and we need these parking spots. When in Philadelphia, it was a total of like, I think 10 to 18 parking spots that were, <laughs> that were displaced like total. Yeah. And yeah. it would to have like a massive infrastructure project taking place, but it's, it's that same tension. It's just like yeah. the folks who want their parking spots and their easier drivability versus those who want safer, or at least presumably safer bicycle infrastructure. So save us, Steve, can we, can we do this without the tension? What do you think? You know, I think, um, I think there is innately a, a little bit of a zero sum game on allocating public space. Mm -hmm. So when you take public space and you allocate it to something else, someone loses that space. Someone loses access to that space. Mm -hmm. And that loss is real and hard uh, and feels like anytime there's a loss, you feel like you should be compensated for it. Um, and so it's really like, I, um, I am very much in favor of building bike infrastructure. I feel like it's really important to understand that people who are driving and who may not have the ability to bike um, or, or, or may not want to, or have, there are many reasons not to bike and recognizing that those people experience a loss is an important aspect of, you know, allocating any kind of, reallocating any kind of street space. 
And to their credit, I think urban planners get a bad name for this, but are actually very good at trying to reach out, in my experience, are very good at trying to reach out to the stakeholders before implementing a change. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you're going to reallocate a parking lane to a bike lane, and, you know, as in Gassan's example, 18 to 20 parking spaces are going to be taken away, um, it can be very helpful to have people who are experiencing that loss understand if they are getting a gain out of it as well. If those 20 parking spaces have been used in ways that generate traffic in their neighborhood, say, like one of the key things about, about parking is that it generates traffic and most people don't like having traffic. If you build a parking garage and you have any kind of you know, uh, reason for people to go park in that parking garage, if that parking garage holds 200 cars, you're gonna get 200 more cars in your neighborhood coming to park in that mm -hmm. garage. And that's yeah. traffic and that's pollution and yeah. that's noise. Um, and so there are there can be benefits even to drivers from a mode shift, um, yeah. but it's really hard to see that when hard what you're see seeing it. is I used to be able to park in front of my house and now I have right. to park around the corner and there's right. never enough parking there. And this is just for the for the bicyclists who, by the way, are are like don't follow the laws. And there's there's a whole bunch of sort of layers <laughs> that that get built on it depending on the the culture of of bicycling and driving in a place. There's like the the class issue definitely comes yeah. into it in Seattle a lot. Yeah. Um, and and this this sort of unpacking that tension is not trivial. Gotcha. Um, Very diplomatic answer. I, I think you're right. I I, I think. There's always going to be a little bit of that tension and a lot of it's cultural. And um, but yeah, I think as long as they I think you're right that urban planners do try to get all stakeholders input, at least in Chicago, it seems to be that way. They've been, been making a lot of changes to the major streets and people have been freaking out about them. Yep. And then they actually come to pass and you're like, oh, this actually works pretty well. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, but, just because the stakeholders are in the room doesn't mean the stakeholders aren't mad yeah. about it at the end. And I sure, think one of sure. the real one of the things I really admire good urban planners for is being able to be compassionate while they're being yelled at, which <laughs> is not an easy thing to do. Yeah, fair shockingly enough. challenging. Exactly. So speaking of bicycling, though, I, I've heard that these protected bike lanes may actually make pedestrians and maybe even bikers less safe rather than more safe, especially at the intersections. Is there any, did I misunderstand that or is there some evidence of that? So um, first off, uh, a conflict of interest statement, um, uh, working on a paper with, uh, with Mike Garber, who is I believe an SCR member um, and a, a brilliant built environment epidemiologist mm -hmm. um, uh, that was looking at exactly this question and I'm not gonna scoop his, his results. <laughs> um, Come on. But, uh, but I will say, um, there that it is it's not totally clear cut um mm -hmm. I, I i think um uh there are some reasons to believe that that protected bike lanes are um are a problem because drivers don't see the bicyclist until the point that, that they're coming into conflict so a protected mm -hmm. bike lane for those who don't yeah. know is a bike lane that is on the sidewalk side of parking so there's a parking lane there's there are the normal traffic lanes yeah. a parking lane not always parking but typically parking yeah. then a bike lane and then the sidewalk yeah. and so one thing that will often happen for these these lanes is that someone will be biking they'll be out of view of the car and then at the, at the point that they reach the intersection the car has to cross that lane in order to turn and if the driver might not see a bicyclist who's coming, particularly if they're riding fast in that protected lane. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the that's, I think, the crux of the argument against protected lanes. Um, the crux of the argument for protected lanes is that it's 
very unlikely that bicyclists will get sideswiped by cars yeah. when they're in protected lanes. Mm -hmm. There are some issues with, with being doored, that is uh, having someone mm -hmm. open the door of a car into the bike lane. But yeah. the issues with being doored on the, that's basically being doored on the passenger side. And mm -hmm. in, whereas a bike lane that's in the standard position, the conventional position between a, a traffic lane and a parking lane, you're much more likely to be doored by the driver's side mm -hmm. um, as a bicyclist. And frankly, most cars are driven by, are, are, are one occupant in, in, in the US. And so the chances that you're going to be doored are much higher on the driver's side than on the passenger side. Yeah, that makes um, sense. There's also this issue of, uh, you mentioned, Brian, of, of conflict between bicyclists and pedestrians and that protected bike lanes can increase that. Mm -hmm. And I would say, as I read the literature, that is true, that, that um, pedestrians who are not expecting a, a, a protected bike lane may wander into it thinking that it's sidewalk or may cross at, the, at, the, at an intersection without looking. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, and, and I think it's very jarring to people who have not been used to that kind of conflict. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I don't think the data suggests that there are a lot of fatalities that occur due to that. But frankly, the, the injury risk of being hit by a bicyclist um, except for some very frail people, is so much lower than the than the, the injury or fatality risk of being hit mm -hmm. by a car. Like right. it's basically a force equals mass times acceleration. And the mass of a bicyclist <laughs> right. is not the mass of a car. No, um, okay. So the, you know these are the um, uh, there is some conflict that arises from protected bike lanes, and there yeah. is still research to do on whether that conflict is is harmful or um, I mean how harmful that is. Sort of quantifying how much that excess risk is. Person. So that's what that, that mean. What you just got at is what I've always thought about. With, with obviously, it's not an equal. I mean, cars are much more likely to kill a bicyclist <laughs> than the other way around. In fact, it's not going to happen the other yes. way around, right? A driver on a car is not going to. I mean, is, you know, it's, got, it's not not going to yeah, happen. There could be a conflict okay, with okay. a bicyclist where a car spins out of control and goes off right. the bridge. All right, let, let me rephrase but, my point. Let me yeah. rephrase my point, which is that the bicyclists are in a much more vulnerable position Absolutely. than drivers. Okay, Absolutely. so so. It would make sense that you would have to err on the side of protecting the bikers because they're in a much more vulnerable position. That being said, I don't bike. I should say this, full disclosure. And I know my brother is a big, who you know, Peter James, um, also does built environment work, big biker in the city. And um, we have a little conflict. So it, even <laughs> interfamilial, you know, driver versus biker conflict. And my point that I always make, I'm like, well, why are, if, if bicyclists are the more vulnerable ones, why are they flying through intersections at red lights? Like you think they'd be the more likely to stop at the red light rather than just flying through. And that always drives me nuts. Cause I'm like, you know, like, I don't want to hit you in my car. I was the last thing I want to do. So please stop at the intersection instead of just flying through the red light. Anyways, that's just a, <laughs> that's, I, you know, that is a key point of conflict. You are absolutely right. I would, um, uh, I think the, the way to think about it from the bicyclist point of view mm -hmm. is that every time you slow down, it's your muscles that are sure. speeding you it. back up. I and if it. you see biking as, work. as, as, exercise as like intentional physical activity to get you to keep you fit mm -hmm. then maybe that's not a big deal but if you see biking as as transportation if you're trying right. to get somewhere yeah and someone Efficiency. is making you slow down and it's so mm -hmm. much fun to keep riding fast and it's so <laughs> annoying to speed up um oh, yeah. there is a really strong desire to not have to stop and i yeah. you know i do think there are infrastructure changes and choices that can be made to support 
making them stop. That's what I was saying. Exactly. So one thing is you can you can make it so that people really do have to stop by having bicyclist type speed bumps. Another mm -hmm. thing you can do is reduce the direct conflict. So mm -hmm. um, in in Seattle, our current stay healthy streets are set up so that there are stop signs, which are which are, are streets where, where what has conventionally been a city street has been reallocated for the purpose during the pandemic, but sort of more broadly, um, they may last after the pandemic. They've been reallocated in ways that they are nominally closed to traffic, although in fact it is possible for a, a car to drive on them. Mm -hmm. um, they, uh, I live on one, as it turns out, by chance, um, and. Uh, I do see more bicyclists using using it and even crossing it than cars often, um, but they've been reconfigured so that the the stay healthy way, the sort of the direction of the bike is going, does not have stop signs except at major intersections, mm -hmm. and crossing does have stop signs. So it's sort of encourage when when mm -hmm. when the stay healthy street crosses a major street, there's a stop sign. There's a lot of infrastructure to make sure the bicyclists stop. When it's a minor street, the stop signs are only for the cars. Um, or for the for the crossing directions, mm -hmm. and that that kind of approach to me is a good um, like engineering approach to this conflict. Make the bicyclists stop when they have to, for the minor intersections. Remove the conflict by giving them the right of way, and everybody is. I don't know if everybody's happy, but it's at least less conflict than if there were four way stops all along, and the bicyclists were used to always blowing through all of the stop signs or stopping at all of them and then being annoyed and never riding. And then there, then the whole safety and numbers phenomenon goes away. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'll, uh, I'll add, I'll add to your, uh, your, your, your argument, Brian, that as a father of two boys, who oh, have God, a yeah. large cargo e-bike that he rides mm. with those two boys frequently, those people blowing past the stop signs irritate me just as much as they irritate anybody in an automobile. It's not, Good. they should not a, not a safe way to be, but, um, yeah. So I'm wondering, Steve, if you have any good examples that you've come across of kind of the success stories of pedestrian infrastructure, like those, yeah, those city designs that are like elevated to the point where, you know, we say, oh, well, you know, if we're going to do some kind of like vision zero project, we should look to X as an example of how to really succeed in this, in this task. Mm -hmm. So the, the sad fact I think for these kinds of things is that you mostly have to look outside the US to see real success stories. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we, we within this country, and you can argue that this is cultural, you can argue that it's spatial, um, sort of the way that, the, that our built environment has developed. Um, we don't have a lot of really great success stories. We do have some cities, I think Portland is probably the best example, that mm -hmm. have dedicated a lot to bike infrastructure and have seen a lot more people biking as a result. Mm -hmm. They have also seen a lot more conflict between bicyclists and drivers, I think. Um, and the, it, it's not been politically easy. Um, and in fact, you know, I, I, I haven't seen it, but I would almost guarantee there's a Portlandia episode that focuses entirely <laughs> on how much of the built environment has been allocated to, uh, to bicycling. Yeah. Um, and because these conflicts are so real. Um, but I think, I, I think probably the, the clearest success story for this is... Um, is in Northern Europe, probably particularly Copenhagen, where they've allocated mm -hmm. a ton of space to protected yes. bike lanes, which is yeah. a very flat city, I should mention, which is right. probably relevant. And a, a, an old and somewhat, not super compact, but somewhat compact city where being able to get around on a bike is probably more easy than any other way mm -hmm. right now. 
Mm -hmm. um, and they've seen a ton over the past, I think, 20 years, they've seen biking as a mode share, maybe it's 30 years at this point, go from something like 5% of trips to something like 30% of trips. Mm. Um, and that's not 100% of trips, but for a relatively cheap investment, it's paid huge dividends that yeah. will that will play out in terms of the safety of the of the space. It also plays out in terms of how many people are using the space because bike parking is so much smaller than car parking. You can fit more people into a place. Right. Um, and 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 I think it, in the long term, in the health of residents, I think the cardiovascular benefits you get from getting around on a bike versus in a car are non-trivial. And sure. I think it's hard to quantify that, but it's probably relevant. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a cultural aspect that we Americans love our cars and we love huge cars, right? And and cars equal freedom. And there's a lot of that that I think maybe needs to get, um, you know, we need to get past, I think, as a nation in order to get more people biking, which even, even as someone who doesn't bike, I recognize that, you know, I would buy, I would say for me personally, I would bike more if it wasn't so unsafe. I don't want to get hit by a car, you know? Um, so that's my biggest yeah. obstacle. And I feel like if I felt really safe, like I, you know, I've been to Copenhagen, look, it feels really safe biking around there. I would bike all the time. So, yeah, I would say that it's, there's a little bit of culture and there's a little bit of built environment. Yeah. Like I think the ways in which our suburbs have sprawled, sure. make biking not feasible. For well, a that's like a people. chicken and the egg thing, and, right? I mean, yeah. and the reason yeah, they sprawled is because we love cars, and you know, like. well, yeah, and the, the reason, <laughs> the reason, right, the reason we love cars is a mixture of notions of freedom and notions of dominance and notions of yes. of manifest uh, destiny, of yeah, yeah manifest destiny and that yeah. that sort of stuff. And yeah. there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but I would say, honestly, in certain ways, my Iraq war experience that I made reference to a long time ago was a was a perverse backwards form of freedom. When I started mm -hmm. taking the bus, I was no longer annoyed at being stuck in traffic jams. That's I was true. no longer feeling like I couldn't leave work until the traffic died oh, down. 100%. I just got on the bus and yeah. I zoned out. And by the I'm time so I got much away, happier, I'm so much I was happier. So much happier. Yeah. yeah. I and I think I think that you're absolutely the car equals freedom in terms of the sort of, you know, uh, what it connotes culturally. Um, yeah. But you don't have to spend that much time living in a car and, or move, driving around in a car in a big city to feel like your freedom yeah. is only arriving once you get out of the car. Well, I'll say one thing before I, I switch uh, the focus here, but um, what, always, what shows me everything you need to know about America is how many really rich celebrities drive their own cars. <laughs> I'm like, you know, the first thing I would do if I was a multimillionaire is get a driver so I could just sit <laughs> on my phone while someone navigates traffic. Like, why are you idiots doing like, uh, I don't know, poor Tiger Woods and his accent. I'm like, why are you driving yourself, man? You're like a billionaire. Anyways. Um, so before this ends, though, I wanted to ask a really good question that Gassan and I came up with um, that, you know, I think is super important to any discussion of pedestrian and bike safety infrastructure is how can the built environment uh, reinforce health disparities if we don't do it correctly? That's a, yeah, that is a really important question about everything in public health and really yep. in, in, in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there are... Uh, the first thing I want to say is that the built environment relationship to um, like how where there are sidewalks in relation to wealth is not as clear cut as you might think. There are a lot of a lot of situations where the thing that we think is good here's sidewalks are always allocated to the wealthier. But in, in the the way that that America is designed and the way that that um, uh, that cities emptied out during the white flight era of the 70s. Um, and, and the way that some 
low-income suburbs were built without um, sidewalks, but also some high-income suburbs, probably to save money, but some high-income suburbs were built without sidewalks to ensure that no one walked and to sort of have the increased perception of safety from crime related to require essentially requiring people to drive, keeping the dirty pedestrians away. Mm -hmm. um, means that it's not as it's not the case like sidewalks there are there are high income sidewalk neighborhoods and low income sidewalk neighborhoods mm -hmm. there are high income no sidewalk neighborhoods and low income no sidewalk neighborhoods sure. um so uh the the relationship is not is not what it is for for other things that mm -hmm. said um what it means to be on a sidewalk can be very different in a in in different places. What it means to maintain the sidewalk, who's in charge mm -hmm. of maintaining the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. When you street view Detroit, you see an enormous amount of construction material dumped on sidewalks in places that uh, would block the sidewalk for someone mm -hmm. who they needed to get around in a wheelchair or a walker. Um, and it's not clear uh, how that is getting policed and cleaned up. And I I don't know Detroit context well. I don't know how it happens. But I'm sure that dumping happens disproportionately in lower income neighborhoods and is cleaned up more slowly or is cleaned up more quickly in more privileged neighborhoods in general. Yeah, gotcha. um, I'm not I'm not involved in this. I don't want to be like uh, calling out the Detroit, whoever it is in the Detroit government who is in charge of cleaning up illegal dumping. Um, but uh, but it's, it's just, likely uh, true in every city. Let's that's how systems work. Right? Yeah, it's how systems yeah. work. And so yeah. um, uh, so the what I, I guess what I wanted to, to get at here is that um, where as long as amenities for pedestrians and cyclists are seen as a good thing mm -hmm. and they will be allocated to places with more resources sure um, mm -hmm. as long as they are uh, seen as and, 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 and because they're allocated to places with more resources they will foster more physical activity and more health benefits mm -hmm. in places that have those resources and we will see that sort of baked into what we see consistently that places with more resources have have you know higher life expectancies and and so right. on yeah um, I'm, okay i was just going to say that i think um i'm going to i'm willing to wager that when resources for safe bike lanes are allocated they are disproportionately allocated to richer neighborhoods and not to poor neighborhoods and then on top of that and i, I mean this is this goes beyond the built environment but there's the opportunity to actually ride a bike freely in different neighborhoods right i mean i know we've right. all seen the youtube videos of of you know black and brown kids getting stopped on their bikes just for riding their bikes down the street right so you know we like to think you know if you're in a bubble that that biking is just something you do for exercise and transportation and and it's just this choice that you make between your car and your bike but for a lot of people that's a dangerous choice to make uh, put you as we were talking about in the beginning in terms of getting putting yourself in conflict with law enforcement etc so sometimes um getting in a car may feel a lot safer for a lot of reasons right Yes, absolutely. I think the sort of there's there's an emerging notion within uh, the research and practice world of mobility justice of sort of ensuring that access to transportation is 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 equitable across different groups. Right. Um, and I think that plays out um, a ton in the in the built environment and and injury research. And you're absolutely right that conflicts with law enforcement are are a major a major component of that, um, as is access to infrastructure. But it's it's, I would say also that it's been nuanced, these stay healthy streets, the sort of street reallocation for bike purposes um, or bike and walking purposes that have happened at least in Seattle under the, in the pandemic have been um, 
uh, as the urban planners did outreach on them, um, they uh, they heard more um, more objections in lower income mm. minority neighborhoods um, mm. among people who you know if the the argument here is if you drive for work if your job is delivering sure. Amazon packages uh -huh. and your street has been reallocated away from you that's making your that's making your life worse if you're a if you're you're an academic like me who can work from home mm -hmm. all the time, I haven't lost anything when my street got reallocated. Right. But I made it harder for the person who's delivering packages. And so understanding that really good point. that yeah. the uh, you know the the justice argument is nuanced and really requires community engagement to understand what a community needs. Um, and again, to their credit, urban planners know this, and it's for us public health people to sort of catch up to them on on how to do community engagement right. Um, but but yes, absolutely, that's a key part. So you've told us about your personal journey to this research area, Steve, and you've spent a number of years researching in this area and you continue to do so. What would you say is the kind of biggest thing you've learned or at least a view you had about pedestrian safety or bike safety that has changed as a result of the amount of information you've had to take in over the years learning about this? So, one that might impact your like day-to-day -day activities. Like, yeah, so let me, let me do this, but now there's no way given what I've read. <laughs> let me tell this as a story. All so, right. I like um, it. Uh, so I am divorced uh, and I have two kids uh, and I see my ex often at soccer games where we will be watching the kids and cheering them on. And we were chatting at one recently and she told me she was considering buying a house somewhere and wanted my opinion on that and how it would work with get, shuffling the kids back and forth. Um, and, uh, and she said, but one of the things that I'm really worried about is that it doesn't have sidewalks, uh, mm -hmm. in this place that I would, that I would move to. And, um, I told her, you know, I know that street that you're talking about and it's completely safe to walk there with no sidewalks. That's a like very minor street and no one crosses, uh, like the, 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 the speed that people drive is very slow. You don't need the infrastructure to be safe. There might be other reasons this is not the right house for you. That, that's yours to figure out, mm -hmm. but I would be comfortable with our kids living in this place with no sidewalks. Mm. Um, before I was engaged in the research, I would never have thought that, that, there, that it would be safe to be in a place with no sidewalks. I would never have thought that, that, the, um, that, that a, a quiet street with no sidewalks can encourage walking just as much as a quiet street with sidewalks. Interesting. Um, but the more you engage with, with where people are actually getting hit, the more you look mm. at what how infrastructure actually affects behavior sidewalks are nice i like sidewalks but the goal is safe places to walk not concrete on the ground and that has changed over time like i care a lot that there are safe places to walk i don't actually care as much whether it's in the form of a sidewalk in the form of the kind of street where other things are calming enough that there's no way someone's going to be driving too fast and hit my kid or anyone else's kid or an older adult out on the street that's a super interesting. Yeah, that, that makes complete sense. You you twisted where I thought you were going to go with that. I thought you are going to be like, absolutely no, you can't move there. Um, so very interesting. Well, let's finish up with one last question on what opportunities do you think there are for students to get involved in this interesting research? So there are lots and lots of and I'm currently looking for a student who can help identify where ah. someone's walking from GPS and accelerometry data. And if anybody wants a job uh, doing some processing of data, let me know. Um, uh, but more 
broadly, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of data out there that needs to be wrangled and cataloged. Um, so uh, I do a lot of work looking at things on Google Street View, identifying mm -hmm. the presence of infrastructure features on Google Street View is a great area um, that will probably eventually, I don't think it's ready to yet, but in the long term, I think we're going to build machine learning algorithms to do a good job of assessing all of the environmental mm -hmm. infrastructure stuff. So there's going to be a lot of student work, I think, in building out the training sets that will help develop that and building out the machine learning algorithms that can identify things in understanding which things are, that are important you can identify with machine learning and which ones you can't. Mm -hmm. um, I, there are also always opportunities. There's so much public data on the built environment. Every, mm -hmm. every construction project that gets contracted for a city is stored in some database somewhere. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a lot of good, good potential for students to do really interesting projects on both on things directly in the built environment, like which infrastructure changes affected injuries and also i think in the inequity side of it which which construction projects cost more um which neighborhoods are getting the construction projects that cost more are we are we to brian to your point that the bike lanes go into the rich neighborhoods first mm -hmm. i think that's probably true but that's quantifiable you could mm -hmm. consider um doing a project that looks at that and and understands if how much this is increasing disparities um and i think those are some great great directions for students who might be interested in space. Cool. Yeah, that all sounds great. And uh, so I think, I think as we close, the main message out of this entire podcast is that I'm going to email Brian's brother and <laughs> make sure that we get Brian riding a bicycle together. <laughs> hey man, I got three kids. You got one with a three kid trailer in the back, then we'll talk. Oh, we have, we, those, I'll send you, I'll send you some links. Don't worry. All right, cool. <laughs> But before we go, I want to say thanks to Steve for joining us today. This has been a really great conversation, and I still learned a lot, even being in this research area. Um, but before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I really strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discount fee for the annual meeting which was held virtually in June 2020 or June 2021. Are we in 2021 now still? Yeah, I think we are. <laughs> Who knows? It's, it's, Time it's, has all no meaning it's all a blur at this point. <laughs> and next year, the plan is for an actual in-person meeting in Chicago, Brian's yeah. hometown. Membership also gets you access to the SCR library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at the epiresearch.org website. We really appreciate you listening and we'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks. Five. Hey, can I make a plug for SCR Chicago? Oh yeah. Hey, if you're interested in this space and if Chicago has a bike share, which I bet it does, and you come to SCR Chicago, let me know and we can go on a bike ride around Chicago um, and <laughs> check out the infrastructure. That's uh, awesome. And we'll have some, some discussions about what works and what doesn't. Actually, before we close, I'll add another little anecdote about the last time SCR was in Chicago. This is actually before I lived here. Um, we were talking about those trolley tracks. We were crossing a trolley track and one of my uh, compatriots got got their shoe stuck oh, in no. one of the trolley tracks oh, and yeah. uh, the trolley was bearing down on us. So yeah, it all comes full circle with this discussion. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. exactly. She was fine. She was fine. That's good. That, that's good to hear. And then, all right, oh, thanks everybody. Yep, thanks.